0: out the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, The Baz Batch, covering every film directed by Baz Luhrmann. We will fully spoil today's film, Moulin Rouge, but we will not spoil <laughs> any future entries in the
1: series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, Emmett, I, I have a cold, as our listeners may hear, which mm-hmm. I apologize for, but uh, as they say in this movie, the show must go on. Show must go on. And also, as they say in this movie, it's consumption. You're going to die, <laughs> which is what I'm afraid of. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I mean, how are you
0: doing? Doing great. Just hot off this movie, having watched it last night. Me too. And excited to talk about it, how it strikes us in, you know, like a, a world where some sort of horrible plague like light consumption sort of in a similar mm. way has just been about, you know, mm-hmm. it's I feel like more relatable perhaps than it was even in 2001 on that whole side of
1: things. When I was looking at some of the reception at the time to this movie, there was a lot of talk about it being a postmodern modern movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a lot of chatter in 2001 of people being like, in the future, all movies will be like Moulin Rouge. They will all be this quick and wild. Dan. <laughs> when you watch it today, it's like, no, it's still like, just Moulin Rouge is like this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just Baz Luhrmann <laughs> is
1: like this yeah. still.
0: It's only in. Wait, what are the very brief stats on Baz Luhrmann's 2001 uh, masterpiece,
1: Rouge? Well, the first stat I'd like to note is that the title ends with an exclamation mark, which I feel is <laughs> integral to the success of this movie. <laughs> Truly. Much like Panic at the Disco. Remember when they tried to, to uh, drop the exclamation mark and then they were like, <laughs> we have to bring it back. This film was released May 18th, 2001 by 20th Century Fox. That was five years after Romeo and Juliet. It is the third film directed by Baz Luhrmann, written again by himself and his writing partner, Craig Pierce. This is, I would like to stress, an original musical. Which does not happen that often. Obviously, there are a lot of inspirations, but it's not based on a stage musical or a play or a book or anything. Whoa. It's an original idea from the two of them. Much like with Romeo plus Juliet, the score is by Craig Armstrong and the music is produced by the pop producers Marius DeVries and Nell Hooper. This movie runs two hours and eight minutes. Now, this is something I'd like to talk about because I think we see it with all of our director series, where basically the more successful they get, the less someone is editing them, the more the runtimes start to balloon. So if we look at Strictly Ballroom, an hour 34, Romeo plus Juliet, two hours on the dot, And now here we are at two hours and eight minutes. It's
0: almost as if editing is something that you should do to a script, whether or not there's money on the line. (laughs) You you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like, even if money isn't an issue, you should
1: still edit the script. That's, this is kind of the JK Rowling thing, right? Where if you Mm -hmm. read like sorcerer's stone or chamber of secrets they're like actually very tight Mm -hmm. by the time you get to like five six seven she's just so famous that no one will edit her to the degree they would like an unknown writer you know and you've got the 900 page tomes yeah for real speaking of money on the line speaking of ballooning this movie had a budget of 53 million dollars that is up from strictly ballroom's two million and romeo plus juliet's 14 so
0: he more than triples it for this one yeah that's crazy okay so a word about that do you think Uh this movie is like obviously you can see where the budget went on that in this movie but it's like do you think this movie is
1: three times more visually striking than romeo plus juliet No, and I think that's more of a testament to Romeo plus Juliet. True. And Strictly Ballroom, honestly. Because I would say Romeo plus Juliet looks like it costs $60 million in today's money. Yeah. And I would say the same for this movie, too. But I feel like there are more locations in Romeo plus Juliet. Obviously... This one probably has more costumes, is a lot more decadent. I would guess they paid Nicole Kidman more than they paid Leo and Claire combined on right. Romeo plus Juliet. You've got kids as your leads, you know? Right. Yeah, I had the same thought. that This does not seem like him unleashed with the budget in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah. It did make its money back and then some, a box office of $179 million. A hit at the time Mm. positive reviews to 66 on metacritic at the time of release that puts it between strictly ballroom at 72 and romeo plus juliet at 60 it was nominated for eight academy awards including best picture the only time so far that one of baz's films has been nominated for best picture uh no best director nod though Uh, It was also nominated for Best Actress for Nicole Kidman, and it won two Oscars, Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design.
0: Well, I would have to agree. Costumes in this are off the chain. The art direction, everything in this feels like a dream, and that is all on the, the art direction, but it is also on the director. So it's like, where are you? Exactly. It's like... How are you gonna have it win for art direction and costume, and then not at least nominate the director?
1: This is such like a singular vision to of a movie, you know. Like it's just wild to me that like they could nominate the movie for best picture, but not him for best director, because it really is like his movie to such an insane degree. Yeah. For anyone listening at home, Emmett, who has not seen Moulin Rouge, how would you break it down for them?
0: Okay, it's a little difficult, but I will attempt. This movie is, starts with a framing device that is a sad young writer disillusioned in the year 1900, right at the turn of the century. He is writing the tragic story of how his great
1: love died, is what it seems is the framing device. Sort Mm, of yes, there is a framing device in this, and I wanted to talk about that because I believe I've made my feelings clear on framing devices before. Yeah, this one has a little bit of a leg up because it has young Ewan McGregor with a beard in the framing device.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and drinking and drinking absinthe, just like Mm. glass by glass. I mean, we've all been there. What's your thought on this as a framing device?
1: Here's my thing about framing devices in general. I think almost all of them are bad, but the ones that are good, I oftentimes am like, the movie would still be better without it. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the question I was wondering about this. Like they don't make clear what has happened. It's just clear that like he is sad and tragedy has happened and he's narrating this story, right? Uh-huh. But you're not sure exactly what. So I do think that adds some layer of suspense, but I also feel like probably as just like a straightforward narrative, it would be different. Now, here's something I found in the research that I didn't even write down, but I thought was fascinating. That originally, Satine, who we'll Mm -hmm. meet in a moment, played by Nicole Kidman, was supposed to have a three-year-old child. Oh, whoa. And the framing device would have been christian ewan mcgregor's character telling the story to her child instead of typing it and like telling it to the audience
0: that's at least more dynamic and like interesting
1: i don't know if that would make it better
0: either or still like warrant it being a a framing device because i agree oftentimes it kind of for me what it does is it it eases tension whenever you have a framing device it eases tension and i almost always want there to be more tension yeah so, like, with this, you, if you know she's going to die off the bat, you are like, oh, how's it going to happen? But then when you see she has consumption, you're like, oh, she's going to die of consumption at the end of this movie. And then he's going to be sad. It, it be, And I think, like, those are two separate things. Because if they just played, like... Oh, she's like coughing, like the slow reveal of her having consumption, like over the course of the movie without the framing device, it is more dramatic, like, oh, is there gonna be like some miracle cure or like is she gonna recover or something, or is it gonna turn out to have been something else? You know, like like they're still holding out hope, and then she does die at the end, and it's only in the like, her last quarter of the movie that you would like know what was up and that she was doomed. I feel like that would play harder, don't you think?
1: Yeah, and also that the last thirty minutes a lot of the tension is that someone is chasing Ewan McGregor with a gun. Yeah. And then if the movie starts with him like a year in the future being like, here's what happened last year. Oh, uh, yeah. You kind of know that he's <laughs> he didn't get mortally wounded at the least, so. Yeah, true. But I don't know. I do, I do still kind of like it. I think that it probably would be better without it, but I think that it's I just think that Ewan does a lot to like sell the movie in general and it's fun mm. having him like with such a different energy there than the rest of the movie, I think is fun too. So
0: there you are. You're you're in this framing device where he's sad, he's right re- he's typing away. Cut back to when he first arrived in the Moulin Rouge to go and like be part of the Bohemian Revolution. Wade, what do you know anything about the Bohemian Revolution? Uh he refers to it as the summer of love. Do you Yeah. Do you
1: know? Well, I know that this movie was inspired by this opera mm-hmm. called La Boheme, mm-hmm. which is all also all about the bohemian lifestyle, and which the musical Rent, if you've seen that, is directly adapted from. It's huh. like a modern American remake of La Boheme. So I sort of know that the bohemian lifestyle is like a very creative lifestyle very adventurous it is as far as i've seen from this movie and from rent and and other things i think it's a lot of like valuing artistic triumph over material wealth and like living with your friends being honest to yourself and your love and creating art yeah i think that's the very it's very romantic ideals you know basically being a real cool guy
0: is is what I'm hearing. Like, yeah, just being with the times, being, you know... He's trying to be part of
1: the heart of it all.
0: Yeah. And he is not doing very well. Part of what's wonderful, so wonderful about Ewan McGregor in this movie is the character he is playing is, like, wonderfully talented and totally dumb. Like, does not make good... Just not, like... Yeah have good skills in anywhere except for the one realm where he seems to have a magical voice that will turn on the lights in Paris. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he- here he is clacking away at the typewriter when all of a sudden a theater troupe falls through his ceiling and they're like, how about you come and, and be a part of this? Uh, he annoys their writer, their staff writers. So their staff writer walks out and now he's their new staff writer and he's going to go and join the Moulin Rouge and come a part of everything. All of this happens in like the craziest fashion possibly imaginable mm. just visually and with songs. I I think it he's singing The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music from The Sound of Music, but as if he had just been struck with inspiration and invented the song there on the spot. <laughs> Which is part of like the wonderful charm of this movie is like watching characters song along These songs that everyone knows in the Uh craziest and like most out of context, weird ways imaginable. Yeah. In endless entertainment in that sense.
1: It is a jukebox musical, but it's not so much that a character will sing one song that you know from somewhere else. It is often that a character will sing 12 songs in a mashup at once that you know from somewhere else. It kind of sounds like someone going ham infuser the DJ game, for a lot of it.
0: Yeah, the sequence in the club when they yeah. first get there is insane. Yeah. I I lost my mind <laughs> watching it. I I was like, what is that? This? this is, and it works, and it like it sounds good, and it still like sounds good, and it's insane. They're like doing simultaneously doing. They're doing Smells Like Teen Spirit and what else?
1: Um, The Can Can and Lady Marmalade. And Diamonds Are a Girl's
0: Best Friend. All at the same time. And it's like... (sniffs) "Ah." (laughs) It is a spectacular spectacular. So, here's the young kid. He's just coming to the club with the theater guys. They're going to talk to the theater producer, this crazy dude Ziedler. They're there and he sees the beautiful Satine. Toulouse, who's the, the theater manager guy, is going to get him to do a poetry reading with Satine to impress her so that she will want to be in their play and then it'll get approved because she's a beautiful star. So he sees her there. He falls in love with her at first sight because, of course, he does. You've seen Big Fish. You know the look. At the same time, there's this wacky bit of business Where Ziedler is trying to get Satine to sleep with this Duke so that the Duke will give the Moulin Rouge... Will, like, basically back the Moulin Rouge and, like, their next big show, The Spectacular Spectacular. So, as he's like, you know what you're having to do in this whole crazy sequence where she's doing, like, a quick change under a bunch of girls' dresses. And he's, like, down there, like, coaching her through this... He's like, this is the one you have to sleep with. And they pop up and she looks out and he's like, it's the one that Toulouse is waving a handkerchief at. She pops up and she sees uh, Ewan McGregor because the other dude was just waving a handkerchief at him. And now he has to run over and grab it from the other dude. And in this wacky bit of business, she mistakes them. She sees Ewan McGregor thinks he's the Duke. When he goes up for a poetry reading, she thinks he's the guy she's supposed to do so they can get the theater backing that they need. Ensuing much hilarity. The Duke basically walks in on this eventually and the tension, I mean, that scene is wild to me. The things that are going on in in that whole like 15 minute sequence, it goes from this comic thing where, where she thinks that she's trying to seduce him and he's like, thinks it's a poetry reading in an audition. And then he is like actually struck with inspiration and sings this beautiful, but sings this beautiful song to her And then the Duke pops in. There's this whole bit of him like trying to escape and her then singing the song back to the Duke wildness. Yeah. Finally, they perform the spectacular, spectacular dance, which may be my favorite thing in the entire, (laughs) in the entire movie. It's so good. They sell the Duke on the show. Duke's like, all right, I'll back it. I need to like have the deeds. They're like, Okay. Duke's gonna back it. Uh, Ewan's gonna write it. Then there's this long thing where the Duke is trying to sleep with Satine. Satine is in love now with Ewan's character, Christian. Mm-hmm. They're writing a play that is also that story, so that the story that you are seeing is also the play that they're performing. The play that they're performing for the Duke and is like happening right under the Duke's nose is basically right. like waving it right in his face everybody's performing it and everyone in the company knows that it's about like what's going on. And like only the Duke is blind to it. Um, But it's set in India and it's about an evil Maharaja and there he's like going to steal the courtesan. But the young like penniless uh, sitar player is going to come along and save her. But it's like the exact, you know, it's the exact thing that's going on. So as all of this kind of like intrigue is going on, the Duke is getting more and more impatient Satine keeps standing them up, but then there's a force working darker than jealousy and more powerful than love. Consumption, (laughs) which is killing Satine. So she's dying. Theater manager, not honest with her about it. He's like, the show must go on. What happens? There's the crazy Roxanne dance. I mean, that's just a deeply affecting sequence on all, all counts.
1: That part is so great. So we've talked about the structure of the Baz movies, how they normally start fast and then slow down at some point. Uh I would say that this movie is like all gas, no breaks, pretty much up through the end of Roxanne, which is about an hour and a half into this two hour ten movie. Yeah. Then there's kind of all this other back and forth business between the Duke and Christian where the Duke sort of realizes what's going on and is trying to like... Take back control over Satine. He threatens Mm -hmm. Christian. This for me maybe goes on like one or two back and forths too long. Like there's a lot of flip flopping for Satine between the two of them. Obviously, she never likes the Duke, but there are like reasons to protect Christian, to protect the Moulin Rouge Mm -hmm. that she would side with him. And then it all builds back up though and culminates in the last 20 minutes strictly ballroom style with the performance of the actual spectacular spectacular on opening night.
0: Yes, which they're doing it. Christian has been banished, so he's like been threatened for his life, but he doesn't know that's what's happened. Satine has like told him to just go um, and he's enraged and upset, but he decides to come back at the last minute in really a pretty cruel move to like pay her Yeah, for all the times that they slept together because it was not because it wasn't real because she's like left him for the Duke because that's what he thinks has happened. Like sneaks backstage, manages to do it. But meanwhile, the dude who's been tasked to kill him, if he sees him, also sees him. And Toulouse, who is Christian's best friend in this whole thing that Christian, I think, doesn't even maybe realize is like, right. Trying desperately to like stop his friend from getting killed, like chasing him around backstage, chasing the dude with the gun, and there's like this absurd sequence, much like like the slapstick sequences at the end of Strictly Ballroom, over like the gun just like going everywhere. This all this Mm -hmm. tension over like is the guy going to get the gun back? Like is he going to get to it? And there's another there's another dancer lady who's like after the like after the gun and like drops the thing on the dude and. Finally, the Duke gets a hold of the gun. He's going to shoot everybody, and good old Ziedler comes in and clocks him in the end. Okay, so they're there. They pull off the show somehow. They sing Come What May. The audience is losing their minds. And then they go backstage. (laughs) Satine is dying. She's finally dying of consumption. Like, the whole crew is backstage, like having this just like this tragic death scene where he like holds her and tries to comfort her and she's dying and apologizing and all this stuff and the whole company is back there and then it cuts out to the audience just like cheering and cheering and cheering. I think that's how it should have ended, but that's just me. That's the image just like to leave on because it is just like such a crazy
1: story. Do you mean instead of cutting back to the framing yeah, device? Cutting back after? to the framing device? Yeah.
0: Well, I just don't think there should have been a framing device and you would just cut. It would just like go to that and then like out to the audience cheering and then the curtains and then boom. But yeah. but then it goes back to the framing device. Basically, he's distraught. He's drinking, drinking his life away. And then eventually he just like kind of comes to out of it just in time and starts writing about it and like is back around to where we see him at the beginning. And then it ends. It's a bleak ending still. It is a bleak ending. Yeah, no, it doesn't get better, which is why I think it should have ended sooner. Because it is, like, such a shockingly mm. sad ending. And then just, like, boom, and then just, like, hit people with that and then leave. Because it just, like, actually, I think it makes it even sadder when you just, like, see him still miserable, like, a year later, writing about it. And, like, the is just shut down. And, like,
1: yeah. Talking about the ending... Just in that last sequence, I want to say, like, there's some amazing camera stuff going on. Mm. First of all, all of the, like, bodyguard chasing you, and there's, like, literal Scooby-Doo shots of the bodyguard, like, creeping behind him <laughs> and chasing him around. But specifically, um, the framing of, like, the gun falling into the crowd as the Duke is leaving, and then, like, the Duke turning around and seeing the gun, like... All of the blocking and, like, the frame composition of that stuff is insane. Like, so good. Top-tier level stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in the same way that... I I think I said this about Romeo and Juliet, too, but, like, it's stunning deep into the frame. It's not surface level. Mm. It is, like, he has staged it all the way out. Like, the entire... Everything that you can see, and therefore probably a good deal beyond what the camera is catching has been like staged out and thought about before. I don't know, it's it's wild.
1: This is also really the start for me of like just being like how do they make these movies? You see it a little bit in the party scene in Romeo plus Juliet, but in this one he will just cut to something and you're like, "Oh, that was a whole scene." Like that was a whole scene they shot and you're seeing like one 10 second clip of it and it will do that like 300 times like there are like so many shots and little i mean it's part of the structure of like basically doing a movie as a montage Mm -hmm. elvis is going to do this in a huge way too maybe even more than this movie but you just think about it like they spent like all day filming that for like two seconds of it to make it into the movie it's wild that is true that's it's insane
0: Yeah, because there's always, like, people doing things in the background, like, whole dances and conversations and things going on. Yeah.
1: wait, I put the question to you. Flop or bop? This is definitely a bop for me. I just think it's, like, pure uncut Baz, basically. It's him. Just, like, you know, we talked about this idea of these first three movies being a loose trilogy. I don't know how much connection there really is, but I do see, like him taking on more and more each time Mm. there is sort of a similar dedication to spectacle and also to this concept that i think he's really into of like how silly can you get versus how dark can you get like how Mm. quickly can you flip-flop and in this movie there is like Literal Looney Tune gags, like there's literally like sound effects of people like quickly walking up the stairs to open the door, you know, like far style or people getting knocked out of the window, people getting slapped around, and then that's cut with like Nicole Kidman like sneezing up blood and even McGregor like crying over a typewriter and this very desolate stuff. So yeah. Yeah, I think it's really impressive. I don't think anyone else could have done it. I think you really see the craft on display here. And I think those two lead performances, which are doing very different things from Mm -hmm. each other, like are both so committed and really sell the movie. There is an ensemble in this, but it's very different than Romeo plus Juliet. It is like mostly the two leads in there occasionally someone else will come in and you'll kind of be like, oh right, they cast an amazing actor to right. basically have two minutes of screen time in this movie. <laughs> so Bop for me, Emmett, flop or Bop? I'd say
0: it's it's a Bop for me too. I think this movie does have some slow patches. And I do think it could could come down a little bit. But I think overall it's very exciting. It is very affecting. And The individual, like, sequences built around songs are strictly incredible. Like, and each one does something very different, too, I feel like. So it's all, like, all of this different kinds of visual flair on on display.
1: I was wondering, watching this, how you would react to it. Because I feel like sometimes you can look askance in a musical, you know?
0: I like this one, and I wonder, too, about, like, how much of this is original music, too? Because, like, is the Spectacular Spectacular song, like, their original lyrics? I think it is just Come
1: What May, which is, like, a fully original song. Oh, is is From Here? Yes. What Was actually written, I read, for Romeo plus Juliet, and didn't get used Whoa. in that. But I believe that that is the only, like, completely original thing in the movie. I love that song, too. I think that's beautiful. And the Elephant
0: Love Medley, as it's called, is one of the most just mm-hmm. virtuosic things. I don't know. It's it's wild. Yeah. I really like this. I remember I watched this for the first time when I was a kid or like when mm. I was younger-ish. Anyway, like maybe early high school and was like torn up by it at the time i thought it was the sad you know like thought it was the saddest thing i'd ever seen at the time mm-hmm. and i can't remember if i watched this before or after australia but i was like on a Baz Luhrmann kick apparently because i really liked romeo plus juliet as well i just think it's all here you know yeah for instance like a virgin best <laughs> song
1: log of all time <laughs> By Jim Broadbent. Yes.
0: (laughs) Incredible. Incredible.
1: Because that starts and you're like, oh, this is funny. Like, how much are they going to commit to it? And then he's like eight hundred percent. (laughs) Eight hundred percent in
0: when they've got like the dance. I think that's like the most like stunning dance in the whole Like, when the guys are doing, like, the whole, like, circular dance around them, like, that's some of the coolest dancing in this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, there's great dancing in it all around, though, too. It's wild. For sure. Do you know anything about the stage production and how that has translated, like, how it's translated? Because I know they
1: did it on Broadway, right? Yeah, I actually saw it earlier this year. No kidding. Yeah. Moulin Rouge! The Musical, it's called. Uh, It was written by John Logan, And it premiered on Broadway in 2019, won Best Musical at the Tonys that year. It's still on Broadway. So uh, if you're ever visiting New York, listener, you can check out Moulin Rouge the Musical, at least at this current time. I saw I liked it a lot. It's much more different than the movie than you would first suspect. Hmm. Even watching the movie, having recently seen the musical, I was kind of like, oh, I, I've I've kind of seen this recently. And then as it went on, I was like, oh, no, they're very different. Oh, huh. They are a lot of different songs. A lot of the medleys have modern pop songs, like uh. 2010s pop songs put in place of some of the ones there. I'm sure it was also a nightmare to license. I read that. Uh- <laughs> yeah. I read that it took Baz, I think, two and a half years to get the rights to every song he wanted to use in this. Damn. The musical, well, it's hard because, like, it has to be a much more traditional thing, you know? So it sort of has to rely on, like, what you can achieve on stage. And there's more of a focus on the side characters, Mm -hmm. which is sometimes fun, but I don't know. I definitely liked the movie more than the musical, even though I enjoyed both of them. The ending, like the second act of the musical is also very different than the movie. Uh Uh-huh. I think maybe to try and get away from some of that really harsh stuff that we were talking about. Yeah. In the musical, they're both performing in the show. The Christian is the male lead of the show. Uh Uh-huh. And there's this whole business where, like they kill themselves in the show and they're going to kill each other in real life on opening night. And that's sort of like the drama at the end. And then there's all this other stuff with it. So the other thing I would say is that Ziegler is like much more of an antagonist malevolent presence Uh, in the musical than I think Broadbent plays him in the
0: film. See, I think that's like one of the most interesting performances in the whole show. Because he's like such a dirtbag, but he is also likable and is very fun. Every time you see him, you're like, ooh, I want more of hi- I want to see more of him on screen. Like more of whatever silly thing he's doing. Mm-hmm. Which I think is good because it makes you, the audience, complicit in like all of that. Which I think is like kind of
1: already a little bit implied. I think you get where he's coming from a little bit more in this one. You also see like how much he is doing to protect Satine and not just to protect the Moulin Rouge, you know? Right, yeah. He also has, like, a character that is maybe his wife. There's, like, a woman who is often with him who I think is a silent character, but I feel like that also helps because she is, like, a really compelling screen presence too and is just sort of giving knowing looks to everyone, like, throughout the whole movie. Mm Mm-hmm. There's another character, I think one of the actors, the guy who saves Satine at the end of Roxanne, who's kind of Uh like that too, who like, I'm not really sure what his character is, but he's like there to give reaction shots and and get involved in the background throughout most of the movie. And he's very compelling as well. You can flesh that stuff out a lot easier in a movie than on stage, I think.
0: Yes. Same with the dancer who like spills the beans to the duke. She is a presence in this movie, even though I think that's like her only real line.
1: She is actually much more of a character in the musical. Oh, really? She is basically like the second female lead in the musical. Yeah. There's much more of all this jealousy between her and Satine. And when I saw it, it was Aaron Tveit and Natalie Mendoza was playing that character, who is in the movie too, as one of the dancers, and then was in the musical. Yeah, the movie does a good job of you basically getting the gist of who everyone is without taking too much focus away from the lovers.
0: Yeah. Is there any other behind-the-scenes drama we should get into?
1: I guess we should say the Moulin Rouge is, in fact, a real place. Uh Wow. It was a real cabaret house in Paris. It was opened in 1899 by Charles Zidler. It was where the Can-Can was invented, and it did burn to the ground in 1915. But it was a real place, and as we said, Baz was inspired by the opera about it, as well as his love of Bollywood films. Remember us talking about that, him oh, growing yeah. up watching the Bollywood films? That's there in the musical they're making a lot. Yeah. And also, he said the, the Greek myth Orpheus and Eurydice, Ooh, which when you were talking about Ewan not being good at anything except singing, that reminded me a lot of... Oh orpheus and Eurydice, too.
0: Oh, and there is this whole thing about, like, Moulin Rouge being, like, the seedy underworld. And he's, like, going into the yeah. underworld to take his love. And if he was to trust her, if he was to, like, actually trust in her and believe in her, then, you know, that he doesn't look back and she doesn't get taken back. There, There's, there's something... I, I, I see where that's... Uh, Baz, no themes. <laughs> Aha!
1: I knew they were hiding here somewhere. It seems like it was a tough production. Apparently, Baz's father, who was sick, died on the first day of the shoot. Oh, my God. Leonard Lerman, who the, the film ends with a dedication to him. Mm-hmm. From there, apparently Nicole Kidman broke her ribs twice once while getting into a corset, and once while being lifted up in a corset, and then broke her knee while falling down the stairs in high heels, while filming the Diamonds Are Forever number. I read an interview with Baz where he was like, yeah, actually a lot of the close-ups on her face in this movie, she is like literally in a wheelchair. Wow. While they're filming all of that, because she broke her knee at the end of the shoot. Jeez. She gave her life for that
0: role, and honestly... I mean, I bet there's some people in the Academy who who heard, like, oh, she got hurt, and then they saw the movie, and she was like, she's coughing up blood, and they're like, oh, they actually used the scene where she was coughing up blood, that's real acting, she's getting an award.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like, that's why she gets the Best Actress nom, is because yeah. they have the narrative about how much work she put in for it, you mm-hmm. know? Damn. The shoot also went over schedule and over budget, they were kicked out- before they finished the movie, of the soundstage in Sydney they were filming, because of a little movie called Attack of the Clones, had to start filming there. Wow! And I think that they um, just like went to Madrid and like slyly shot a bunch of stuff on the street to like <laughs> finish the movie. Basically, get all the shots they didn't have after it. That's hilarious. I guess also after this, I should mention there was a revival in the movie musical which was pretty much not very popular at the time this came out. And then the year after this, I believe, Chicago wins Best picture. I think part of because of this interest. And then you've got Ranch, you've got Dreamgirls. This kicks off sort of a period of like the prestige musical. That's so cool. The last thing I want to mention, I'm not sure if you've seen this, is that at the 2018 Winter Olympics, two figure skaters from Canada, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moir, They performed uh, their routine to a 12-minute Moulin Rouge medley where they do the ice skating routine to uh, several of the songs from this. And it is truly stunning. Like, I would say everyone at home, move on over to the YouTube app and watch this and then come back. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Whoa. They became the most highly awarded figure skaters ever after this performance and also retired after this performance, which I get because it is like... (laughs) A Perfect performance, sort of acting out like the plot of the movie to this medley of songs from it on ice. That's wild, it's unbelievable stuff. It's really incredible. Wow. Well,
0: they were obviously the MVPs, possibly of figure skating history. But, Wade, who would your MVP, other than the protagonist? I guess that's Christian and Satine.
1: It's hard because they are definitely most of the movie. Mm, mm-hmm. I think I would give it to John Liguizamo as Toulouse, one of the only like benevolent presences in the film. Mm. It's funny just to watch him play this part, especially after Tybalt, where he's like so badass as Tybalt in this he's playing like so low status he's he's got this funny little voice that he's doing and there's clearly something going on with him. There's this one scene where he's, like, sobbing and talking about, like, how he so desperately wants love and he observes everything. It's this really affecting moment from a character that has mm-hmm. been in the background for for most of the stuff. And then he gets this huge, broad, comic, madcap, slapstick stuff to play in the last act, too, so... I think it's a pretty incredible performance very much against type from John Leguizamo who I think of as being like a funny guy but like a tough guy, you know. Yeah. How about you? Who would your MVP be?
0: I would have to go probably with with Ziedler. I think he's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like the dances and songs that he is involved in are always like the most exciting. The like the way he handles making songs into that guy's way of manipulating people is so interesting. I think he is funny and heartfelt and kind of antagonistic at the same time. A really interesting character. I'm like, I think he's a more interesting character than the Duke, who I also think is a really good performance. So I want to shout him out too. Mm -hmm. I think that's a hilarious comic performance, but I think Ziedler a much more complicated villain or antagonist type.
1: Yeah. Should we spare a word for Ewan and Nicole before we move on? I mean, what do you think of his performance here, as opposed to other early work?
0: I think what works best about him in this in this movie is playing like his sort of innocence in awe of things, and kind mm. of being like, "Whoa, wow, look at all of this!" You know, just I never would have thought, gee whiz him playing that sort of guy and then watching that slowly get kind of corrupted by the world itself and like the situation he's put under i think he does a pretty good job of it it's funny because like i think there's too much back and forth at the end but it is also like missing a real scene where he's actually jealous of her and the
1: duke yeah
0: where like that actually affects their relationship because there's that one where he's like where were you last night and she's like i was sick that doesn't feel like high stakes enough yeah i it feels like it's missing at least one to get us to where he's like in such a bitter rage at the end or where he would even be able to believe her at the end i don't know it's it seems like it might be missing something but i'm not sure that's his fault you know i think he's playing it all Mm -hmm. well but i think it comes off as a little extreme at the end possibly because you're like well wait where's the scene where he got there you know
1: Yeah, it does feel extreme, I mean, especially, like, when he brings her out on stage and throws the money down and yells at the crowd, like... Yeah. That stuff is really harsh. It's an interesting sort of premise, you know, because she is a courtesan, which she knows from the beginning. Yeah. One of her jobs is to sleep with people, like, Mm -hmm. literally for work. And he sort of acknowledges it at the top. He's like, I won't get jealous. Like, yeah, we can be together and I won't get jealous and I'll know how this goes.
0: And that's part of that whole bohemian thing as well. It's like nobody has, you know, okay. ownership over anybody else sort of thing.
1: But then sometimes you say you won't be jealous about something and then you do get jealous. Yes. Like, that is a very human emotion too, yes, you know? Yes,
0: that's also a very real thing. Yeah.
1: So I do I get it and I feel like I have more sympathy for him than characters in similar predicaments in other stories. Uh I do think it gets a little too extreme at the end for sure. Her performance I just think is incredible. I think she is giving it all, right? Like I think that her and honestly Broadbent are like so tuned in to Baz and like hyping it up to 11. Especially her first scene like that long scene in her dressing room where she's mm. playing all the different stuff. And she has the ability also, like we were saying to go like really big comic to like really sensual to really dark, you know, like it it's an unbelievable performance. I think that no one else would have done it in quite the same way. Part of what this movie is doing is
0: saying, look at that look at how good she is at doing that because there's even that scene at the beginning where she's like talking about the different ways that she could seduce him where she literally goes through three different whole characters that you see pass over her in a moment where where she's talking about what the Duke might want. It's like, not just look at how good Satine is at that, but look at how good Nicole Kidman is at that. Like, look how well we can fool you in some way. I think that there's this weird... Meta-narrative thing going on too, where they're like In the spectacular spectacular In the dance that they're doing They say something about If in the end should someone die There's a gasp and a brief take to the audience And then cut back away into Stuff happening again And it's like we're gonna tell you Somebody's gonna die
1: and it's still gonna be a spectacular spectacular You know You know where else she does that That switching thing you're talking about That I was just thinking of Where? In the Northman, ooh, in that bedroom scene in the Northman, she also does, yeah, the, you know, like flip of the switch, self preservation mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I don't know. And there is all this business of like her wanting to be like a real actress, which I think she plays well. I don't, I, I don't always know how much how I feel about that concept in general. It strikes me as like a very male idea. Oh yeah. You know, like, the stripper performer who wants to be, like, an honest actress. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's, like, a little moralistic just inherently Mm -hmm. in sort of ways. But I think she plays it well. And it's, like, look at how much you're doing already. Like, she is a real actress, like, and all this stuff in her real life. She just doesn't think it because of the role she's playing or whatever. But anyway, I'd say between Northman, Paddington, and Moulin Rouge no one has had a better year on cinema bums than Nicole Kidman.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For real. For real. Yeah. She's incredible. Uh, and we're about to talk about her all over again next week (laughs) when she is once again, one of the two main leads Hmm. in Australia. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) What way do you have any other final thoughts about this film?
1: Uh, we see him doing the Raimi cam. At one point, the mm. Evil Dead like camera is a character running up. You see that like going through the town a couple times and like running up to the theater on opening night. I think that stuff is pretty interesting. I don't know. I think it's a really accomplished movie. I was really glad to rewatch it. It strikes me as sort of that Romeo plus Juliet is sort of like the epic tragic love for fifteen to twenty five. You know, Uh like that period Uh of your life. And this feels like a little more mature, like more of a like 25 to 35, like epic tragic love story. For sure. It's like a different take on themes that he's tackled before, but he's doing it in such a way that makes it still feel really fresh. I don't know. Any final thoughts from your side of it?
0: I think this movie is very fun. But again, I'm not sure where it's going at the end or like what it like mm. what it means that like at the end he's writing. Cause he already wrote the story that they were in when he was writing the play. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, he already's actually already written the story of their lives, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know where it gets us and that the Moulin Rouge is like closed down and everything, but that didn't happen until 1915. So it's not like it was a failure because of them or in that moment, you know, like yeah. burned down 15 years later because of probably some electrical problem you know i i don't know i i'm left with a with a question mark about it in a kind of on the kind of critical sense but in terms of just like sheer joy of viewing and like technical masterpiece all of that stuff i i love it
1: i think it might be a bohemian ideal too because i'm pretty sure that rent also ends with several members of the group dying and then Mm -hmm. the main character like making a documentary about their lives. Oh, interesting. I wonder if that's there in La Boheme, if that's how the opera ends, too. But I agree, it feels like a final twist of the knife that's missing.
0: Yeah. Well, are you ready for our
1: quiz? I hope I'm ready.
0: I think this is going to be a pretty good quiz, I hope. The theme here is much in line with Baz's work. This is pulled from two lists Golden Globe nominated romantic tragedies and romantic <laughs> teen tragedy movies.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: Both lists of which feature both Romeo plus Juliet and Moulin Rouge. So here's 10 movies from that list that are not directed by Baz. Okay. First up, it's a 2005 romance drama. Think Prestige. Okay. Think famous actors, maybe like kind of as they were starting to get famous. think iconic
1: cowboy movie. Okay, I was thinking that it could be Brokeback Mountain. It is, it is. before the cowboy hit, I want to say, but then i was I thought that was a little bit later than two thousand five. There it is. Brokeback Mountain
0: number one. Next up, we have got a film from two thousand seven. Okay. It is based off a book. It stars Kira Knightley and James McAvoy. Mm.
1: Oh, I believe this is Atonement. That is correct. Nice work. I have never seen Atonement, although I watched Pride and Prejudice for the first time earlier this oh. year. I really like that. I think that's more like... Romantic comedy, though, right?
0: It's not as tragic. That is true. I think it's the same director for both of them, though. Uh, Next up, we've got a World War II film starring Rafe Fiennes and Juliette Binoche uh, and Willem Dafoe. It's from 1996. Think adult drama that you've always heard people talk about but have never seen.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it sounds like that. I think it won Best Picture okay. that year. Wow. Hmm. The English Patient? That is correct! <laughs> nice pull! Nice
0: pull, my guy! <laughs> wow! Incredible. You just led me right there. This next film should be a little bit easier. This film is too big to sink. <laughs> it is by a classic uh, action director turned romantic drama our uh-huh. tour in this, uh, wait, what year was it? 1997 film.
1: I believe this is another French film Titanic. That is correct. That is correct. Uh, next up is actually another French
0: film. Um, <laughs> it's from 2012. Um, it clocks in at a formidable two hours and 38 minutes. And features a sad child staring at you from the cover. Mm. It is starring Anne Hathaway. Oh, another Baz favorite, Hugh Jackman. Russell Crowe. I believe this is Les Mis. That is correct. That is correct. Nice work. Next up, we have got the 2016 drama romance. This one might be slightly misleading to be in the romantic tragedy realm, but I thought we should include.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Is a story told in three different time periods of one person's life um, by a famous theater mm. playwright.
1: This is, I believe this is Moonlight. That's correct. I have still never seen Moonlight. I would love to.
0: It is incredible. I, I, it is romantic and it is tragic, but I don't think the romance and the tragedy are at are mm. intersecting quite that way. You know what I mean? In in quite the same way as some of these where like both your young lovers die or okay. one of your young lovers dies, you know.
1: And I think that's from the director of Mufasa the Lion King,
0: right? It is Barry Jenkins. <laughs> Next up we've got a 2002 romance drama this is one that as a kid, I remember like hearing older kids be like, oh, we're going to go watch this movie and be sad. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it The Notebook? No, it's not The Notebook, although that's a good... Uh, it's in that realm... Uh, it's oh, it's two North Carolina teens, Landon Carter and Jamie Sullivan, are thrown together after Landon gets into trouble and is sentenced to perform community service. Is it
1: the the cancer one? I think so. I think it but is. What is? It? Remember, you're, the, you're close. Remember the walk. Oh yeah, you're you're. Remember the Titans. You've got most of the a walk to remember. Yes, <laughs> that's to remember. correct. Uh, and by North
0: Carolina writer Nicholas Sparks our, our shining star <laughs> alright speaking of shining stars this next film is from 2014 is based on a teen romance novel uh, by a popular writer of many such this stars the
1: inimitable
0: Shailene Woodley
1: hmm uh, oh this is The Fault in Our Stars
0: Absolutely, you're killing it on this on this game. Uh, did
1: you see The Fault in Our Stars? Yes, when it came out, I liked it. I think, but I haven't seen it since. I just saw The Fallout. It was a movie that mm. came out in January. I've just been catching up to the films uh-huh. that came out in January for Jeez. my year end list. Anyway, Shailene Woodley is in that movie as like the therapist in like two scenes. And she's really good in it. But I was like, that's interesting. Like, is this like the pipeline for teen stars now is like being the older adult in new teen dramas, basically. That's
0: interesting.
1: It was really wild because I haven't heard anything about her being in the movie. And then it, the, she pops up and you're like, wait, is that shaylane Woodley? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. The last two
0: are a little bit more recent. Uh, This one is from 2014. It's starring classic child actress Chloe Grace Moretz. Life changed in an instant for young Mia after a car accident puts her in a coma. During an out-of-body experience, she must decide whether to wake up and live a life far different than she had imagined. The choice is hers if she can go on. I'm not sure if I know this. What, What year did you say it was? Um, 2014, I believe it's based on one of those, like, sad teen novels. The the title is also, like, the premise of the movie in some way, if that makes sense. Hmm. Or is, like, the question of the movie. Basically, she's got an out-of-body ghost version of herself, like, observing herself in a coma. And is like, oh, am I going to... Live or die? (laughs) Yeah, it's basically, yeah, to be or not to be. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, but not not either of those two, but something quite similar.
1: It's not ringing any bells. I think I got to throw in the top. This
0: is the film "If I Stay," which looks truly huh. upsetting. I I've been watching the trailer <laughs> on a loop as I've been on the IMDb DP <laughs> page, and it just looks real real sad. Wow. All right. Next up. Last movie on this list, uh, Wade, you are 8 out of 9 so far. Let's make it 9 out of 10. It's from 2019. It's also, I believe, based on a sad teen book. Okay. There's a pair of teenagers who both have the same rare disease. They meet in a hospital and fall in love. Though their, their disease means that they must avoid close uh, physical contact.
1: Huh. Is this the Cole Sprouse movie? Is it Coles... It is! Uh, And Haley Lee Richardson. No way. I remember Kelly talking to me about this movie. Uh, Can you give me a hint about the title? I'm not sure I know what it is.
0: It represents a distance that they must stand from each other. That's a little bit different and a little bit shorter than the distance that you had to stand away from people for COVID. (laughs) Okay, Uh
1: okay. Is it uh, five feet away? Almost. Five feet apart? (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Five okay. feet apart.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's the state of movies these days. Up next, join us in 39 weeks when we discuss Credit Gerwig's Barbie, <laughs> another adult <laughs> romance for the ages. <laughs> the romantic tragedy. <laughs> the romantic tragedy of Barbie. Before that, join us next week when we discuss Australia which is not a romantic tragedy but is a romance hmm. in every in every sense of the word hmm. like if if australia was a book if they did a straight if they did a straight screen-to-page adaptation, it would yeah. be like one of those like fourteen hundred-page paperbacks that's like sitting under a table at some beach house, like being used as a pro- <laughs> to like prop up, prop up the leg, <laughs> and it would have like Hugh Jackman like wearing almost no clothes on the cover, <laughs> and it would just
1: say Australia. Well, I guess I'm excited. <laughs> I can't believe I'm I genuinely can't believe I finally watched it. I thought that I would never watch this movie unless unless we were hanging out and you strapped me to a chair and taped my eyes open. I might have to drive to New York again <laughs> just to come watch it with you.
0: I believe the drive would be shorter than the movie. Shorter than the movie, exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: Okay. Well, until then, dear listener, styfe roasted night. cinema bums is a production of dkg podcasts it is created and produced by wade lawrence Holloman and me emmett temple wade also edits and mixes the podcast our theme music is by zane Holloman, who you can find on bandcamp and our show art is by autumn beckner our social media is managed by laura bennett if you like what you hear please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts the two best ways to spread the word about our work You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.